everybody. It is so great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online because you stayed up too late to watch that amazing football game last night. Michigan fans, where are you at? Yeah. That was, you know, I thought, I'm not going to talk about it today, but I just can't even help myself. That, that second half was great. The first half, I don't know what was going on there. But uh, anyway, I also wanted to get ahead of some of the questions that I know that you have in your mind after walking in and seeing the gathering space today. Uh, and the answer to your question is this. No, I have no idea how my mom and the decorating team figured out the perfect number of puffballs needed to make our gathering space look like a snow globe, right? But they did. Is it not awesome? Yeah, absolutely. Give them a round of applause. Yeah. And in case you're wondering, there are 3,333 puffballs hanging out there. Feel free to count. It'd be a great thing to occupy your kids if you want to talk after service. Anyway, as many of you know, we're in the second week of a series that we've called Seasons that'll take us right up through Christmas Eve. And in this series, we're taking a look at the six annual feasts that God gave to ancient Israel in order to help them remember special times that he had met with them in a special way. And these feasts are described in detail in the third book of the Old Testament. It's a book called Leviticus, and the feasts are, in no particular order, uh, Passover, First Fruits, Pentecost, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and tabernacles. And, and I mentioned this last week, but it, it's worth noting again. Um, it would be fair if you're new around here to go, okay, not many of us here are Jewish, so why do we care about the Jewish feast? And it is a great question, right? But uh, if you're thinking that, you should know that the reason that I'm so fascinated by the feast is that scholars have long noted that the Hebrew word translated feasts is mikra, and mikra can also be translated rehearsals. In other words, the Jewish holiday season is marked by celebrations designed not only to remind God's people of what he had done for them in the past, but also to point them forward to something that God would one day do, as it turns out, not just for them, but for the whole world. And this idea is actually affirmed in the writings of an early pastor named Paul. So in a letter to non-Jewish Christians living in Greece, who apparently were facing tension from Jewish Christians because they weren't celebrating the Jewish feast, check out what Paul writes. He says to them, Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regards to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. He says, These are a shadow of the things that were, past tense, to come. The reality, he says, is, present tense, found in Jesus. In other words, Paul writes that in a sense, Jesus fulfilled the feasts of Israel. They were sort of what, he was sort of what they had been pointing to all along. And moreover, as it turns out, the Jewish feasts actually predicted aspects of Jesus' life and identity and mission hundreds of years before he was even born. And in this series, I want to show you how. Okay, so now with the rest of our time together today, I want to show you how Jesus fulfilled a Jewish feast called First Fruits. Uh, and it comes on the first Sunday after Passover begins. So we talked about Passover last week. Um, we talked about Jesus having a final Passover Seder or Seder meal with his disciples on Thursday. So that first Sunday after Passover would be first fruit. So here's what God told Moses, who had recently been recruited to lead Israel, to tell the people about this day. God tells Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land I'm going to give you, 
and you reap its harvest, bring to the priests a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. He says, he is to wave that next slide. Yeah. He's to wave the sheaf before the Lord so that it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. So the Sabbath, Jewish Sabbath is Saturday. So on Sunday, he says, you must not eat any bread or roasted or new grain until the very day you bring this offering to your God. And then he says, this is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. In other words, wherever you end up, you need to remember to celebrate the feast of first fruits. So God essentially tells the people, say, after you enter the land I promised you, after you enter the land that is known as the land flowing with milk and honey, after the land you enter the after you enter the land I promised your ancestors, you're to offer, God says to me, some of the first grains that you harvest each spring. In fact, he says, don't eat any bread or grain until you make an offering of the first fruits of the spring harvest to God. And and so thousands of years later, we're kind of reading this and we're like okay, fine, what's the big deal? Um, and the reason I think we feel that way is we can go to the grocery store pretty much year-round and buy pretty much anything that we desire to eat. But of course, it wasn't that way in the ancient world. I mean, as I mentioned, first fruits is a feast in the early spring. And so consequently, each year at the time of this feast, the people of Israel would have just lived through the long, cold winter without any grain to harvest. And their stockpiles and storerooms would be at the lowest point of the year. And they would have watched as the winter wheat, along with it, you know, the promise that they would have food again to feed their children, as that began to grow. And nonetheless, God tells these people, don't eat any of the spring harvest until you offer me the first fruits. Which, of course, raises a really great question that only requires one word to ask. I mean, why? Like, why would God want them to go through this ceremony each spring? Why is it such a big deal? And maybe a better question, what is it that he understands about human nature? What does he want to remind them? Well, Jewish scholars have long suggested that the purpose of the Feast of First Fruits was to help the people of Israel remember that they needed to place their trust in God and not in their own abilities to provide for their needs. See, God knew that without a reminder, during seasons of abundance, they would begin to think of themselves as self-sufficient and independent. Can you imagine a people who during times of abundance would think themselves self-sufficient and independent, right? Yeah, they would come to think, well, I guess I don't really believe that I need God. And that's the danger. They would enter the land, they would experience blessing and abundance, and they would forget about God. And, and so God gives them this to remind them. In fact, this is fascinating. Moses uh, actually warns the people about this connection between abundance and forgetfulness in a speech he gives right before they enter into the promised land. And his words are recorded in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. So check out what Moses tells the people. He says to them, when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, you know how that happens, right? And your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied. Then he says, you know, all this abundance, your heart will become proud, and you'll forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt 
out of the land of slavery. He said, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But he says, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is for today. And so in other words, Moses warns the people again about this connection between abundance and forgetfulness. And as it turns out, abundance can be a real challenge to faith because in times of abundance, our hope has this natural tendency to migrate away from God and towards our abilities to control the outcomes in our lives. And again, if you think about it, you already know this is true. I mean, have you ever noticed, maybe it's just me, but it's not. Have you ever noticed that your prayer life seems to get a lot richer when your life falls apart or your future seems uncertain? I mean, I don't like this that it happens to me, but it really does. Like when things are going well, and like the bank account is relatively stable and the stock market is relatively stable. And like, you know, maybe for you, like you like the people that your children are dating, which is like always good to know, right? And like the routine physical comes back with routine results. The prayers, if we're honest, they tend to be short and often prayed more out of obligation than desperation. But see, when things go off the rails and they do for all of us from time to time in this life, then we can find ourselves on our knees, maybe even on our faces, like passionately crying out to God, pleading with him to intervene in our circumstances. It's, I'm telling you, like finding ourselves in a season of insecurity can catalyze both our prayer life and our sense of dependence on God. And like it or not, it's true for us, and apparently it's been true for thousands of years because it was true for the people of ancient Israel. And so God says to them, after leading them through the wilderness for 40 years, as they're about to enter the promised land, he says, listen, when you go in there and you find yourself in a place of increasing abundance, and after you've traveled through that long, cold winter each year and watch your stockpiles and storehouses diminish, and when the winter wheat finally starts to come in before you take any for yourselves or your family to eat, bring me the first fruits. Bring it to a priest in the temple to acknowledge who is ultimately in control of your physical provision and who ultimately controls the outcomes of your life. It's like we got to remember when, when God demanded the first fruits from the people, the rest of the harvest hadn't come in yet. And technically, there was no guarantee that it would. I mean, you could have other nations invade or a plague of locusts can break out and something could, you know, make the harvest not harvestable. So with this feast, what God is essentially asking his people is to trust him that there's more to come. And actually, this talk is called More to Come. God wants his people to trust that there's more to come and that he will ultimately provide for them. And now I was thinking about this this week, and if it were up to me, I think I'd rather store enough grain for myself and my family to feel secure and then give to God, uh, you know, thanks for the abundance that I already have. Like, that's a way better idea. That's way more comfortable, at least from my perspective. And, and, but see, God knows that in that scenario, even if I were to give way more than I would have before I filled my storehouses, my faith in him wouldn't need to be exercised. And through exercise, faith and trust and relationship with God grows. And so, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that in the end, the Feast of First Fruits was given to ancient Israel as a way to strengthen their faith 
by providing them with an annual reminder of their need to place their trust in God. And, and, and if you think about it, you know, that's actually something that God does over and over and over again, not only in our lives, but in the stories that you find in both the Old and New Testaments. I would just, you know, a couple examples to show you what I mean. Think about when God came to a man named Noah and told him to build a 450-foot boat. Somebody actually did it in Kentucky. That's some hardcore stuff going on right there, right? Yeah. But God comes to this man named Noah in the ancient world. Hey, build this 450-foot boat. And eventually, like, giraffes and elephants and rhinos and alpacas and lemurs are all going to, like, go into the boat. And then God says, you know, Noah, I'm going to then flood the earth and anything not living in the boat uh, or on the boat is going to die. And it's like you think about that moment. And if you're Noah, like, do you have the whole story? No, of course not. Like, accepting God's invitation to build the boat was an act of faith, an act of trust that there was more to come and there was more of the story to be experienced and that probably deepest of all, like that God would provide for him. Or, or think about a man named Abraham who, you know, God made contact with some 4,000 years ago somewhere in modern-day Iraq. And he says, Abraham, I want you to trust me and I want you to leave everything that you've ever known behind and I want you to walk to a foreign land some 500 miles away with only the promise that, that one day somehow your ancestors would be a great nation through which God was going to bless the world. And you think about that moment of invitation. Abraham didn't have the whole story. Like accepting God's invitation to move was an act of faith. It was an act of trust, especially when you consider the fact that Abraham and his wife were childless. They had spent decades desperate to have children, and at the moment God makes contact, they were well past the age when they should have been able to conceive. Like God's promise would have seemed impossible, so Abraham had to trust that God would provide, that there was more to come, that there was more to the story to be experienced, but that ultimately God was trustworthy. If you think about it, even those first followers of Jesus received invitations to follow Jesus without many details. And when they accepted his invitation, it required them to leave everything behind, family, friends, pretty much all they had ever known. And they had to choose to trust that there was more to come, that there was more to the story to be experienced, but then ultimately that God could be trusted to provide what they needed. They took a leap of faith and their lives were never the same. I think that's the heart behind the Feast of First Fruits. The people of ancient Israel were instructed to offer God the first fruits of the winter harvest, acknowledging that he was their ultimate provider and trusting him that there was more to come. Now, as interesting as all of that is, and I nerded out on it all week, trust me, right? Um, we've really only just begun to understand the Feast of First Fruits because as I mentioned, the ultimate purpose of, first, of the Feast of Israel was to point to Jesus. They were a shadow of what was to come. He was the reality from which the shadows were cast. And so to show you the connection between Jesus and First Fruits, we need to once again fast forward 1,500 years or so from the time that the feast was first celebrated to the last week of the life of Jesus. The last week of the life of Jesus is where a lot of these strings sort of pull together. And I mentioned this last week, but the last week of Jesus' life took place during the Jewish feast of Passover. It was one of the three major feasts of Israel. And so when Jesus and his disciples walked into Jerusalem that year, the city, like every year during Passover, would have been filled to overflowing 
with people, Jewish people from all over the world who had come to offer a sacrifice of a lamb in the temple to God. Um, But when Jesus and his disciples enter through the sheep gate on that Palm Sunday, they confronted not only a city filled to capacity, but a city alive with expectation. See, the Jewish people had been crying out to God for generations to send the long-promised Messiah, the Christ, to lead Israel to freedom once again. And there was this increasing belief among the people that Jesus was that Messiah, that the time had finally come, that God was finally going to draw a line in the sand and say, enough, and he would do something about the Romans who occupied Israel at the time. But as you know, that isn't quite how the story unfolded. Instead of inciting a military revolution, on Thursday night, Jesus shared a last supper with his first disciples and then walked them out of the city and down through the Kidron Valley and up to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends, arrested, falsely accused, tried, and convicted, and then less than 24 hours later, on the day we remember as Good Friday, he surrendered his life on a Roman cross. And before the sun set that day, Jesus' body was taken off the cross by two Jewish religious leaders, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who had come to believe in Jesus. So they took his body off the cross and they wrapped it in 75 pounds of linen, coated with a mixture of myrrh and aloes, as was the Jewish custom. And by the way, I I think this is kind of fun to think about. Um, You know, if Jesus wasn't already dead, he would have suffocated because they wrapped him in all of this cloth. He would have looked something like a mummy. Anyway, his body is taken off the cross, prepared for burial, and then placed in an unused tomb just outside the gates of Jerusalem. And then the entrance of that tomb was sealed with a large rock. And we've said it before, normally around Easter, but I think it's worth noting that 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 night, that night of the first Good Friday, everybody who had followed Jesus unfollowed Jesus. Because, well, there was simply no movement to keep moving when Jesus died because, well, he just claimed too much about himself. In many ways, he was the movement and he was his message. And so when he died, everyone who had followed Jesus Whatever they had hoped for or believed in him sort of unfollowed him and retreated into the shadows because they were afraid for their lives. In fact, the closer they were to Jesus, the more likely they felt it was that the same Romans who put Jesus on a cross would hang them on a cross. So everyone ran and everyone hid. Well, everyone except a group of fearless women who on the first Sunday after Passover began, a morning on which the Feast of First Fruits was scheduled to begin in the temple, they made their way to the tomb where Jesus' body had been laid with spices to re-prepare his body for burial. And what's really fun, I read these commentaries, which help you understand the Bible. You should read some of the theories about why the women went to re-prepare Jesus' body. They have all these different ideas and things, and I can clear it up for you really simply, okay? Some of you have heard me say this before. Ready? Okay, two guys did it as the sun was setting, so they were in a hurry, okay? And if a couple of guys did it in a hurry, ladies, let's be honest, it needed to be redone. Are you with me on this? Right. Anyway, and the guys are like, yeah, that's probably fair. Anyway, an early Jesus follower named Mark described that first Easter morning for us in his account of the life of Jesus. Here's what he says. He tells us when the Sabbath was over, so the Sabbath is sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, Mary Magdalene, 
Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, that's Sunday to the Jewish people, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and, and they asked each other, and I love this, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? Like, it's really heavy. What are we going to do? He says, but when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. And then he says, whatever anybody says when someone is alarmed at a significant moment of the Bible, don't be alarmed. He said, don't be afraid. Love that. He said, you're looking for Jesus of Nazarene, who was crucified. They're like, yep. He is risen. He's not here. And I just, I imagine myself standing there that first morning. And the thought of that was so unbelievable. But what was undeniable is that Jesus' body wasn't where everybody expected that it would be. And then as the story unfolds, later that day, many of Jesus' disciples had the opportunity to see their resurrected rabbi face to face. And in that moment, they knew that the impossible had happened against all odds. And it is incredible as it must have seemed, Jesus was alive again. And in a moment, nobody was expecting, like everything had changed for everyone. And so then Jesus' first followers went on to tell the world what they had seen. And they wrote down what they had witnessed. And eventually, some of their writings were collected and became part of the New Testament of our Bibles. In fact, and we, I say this you know, pretty regularly around here, but without a resurrection, there would be no New Testament. And we never would have read the Old Testament because that was the Hebrew Bible. It wouldn't be our story. But how that all went down, you know, that's a, that is definitely a story for another day. But with the rest of our time together this weekend, what I want to do is reflect a little bit on the implications of the resurrection, as well as how they relate to the Feast of First Fruits. And I want to begin by showing you what I believe to be an absolutely fascinating verse in a letter written to Christians living in Greece by a pastor named Paul, a man who, by the way, was, had grown up an observant Jew, had been trained is an expert in the Jewish law and would have celebrated the Feast of First Fruits every year of his life with his family. So he write, he's writing to a group of Jewish Christians who were struggling to believe, because they were hundreds of miles away from where it happened, in the literal, historical, physical resurrection of Jesus. And here's what Paul says to them. He writes, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Like Paul goes all in on the resurrection. But he says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And then look at this. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, Paul writes to people who understood well the feast of first fruits that Jesus fulfilled the feast of first fruits like it had been pointing to him all along. And he would say, just like your ancestors, our ancestors had been instructed to always bring the first fruits of their harvest to God, trusting that there was more to come. We have been invited to trust in the fact that because Jesus rose from the grave, we too will one day rise. And then Paul goes on. He says, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. He said, but each in turn, Christ the first fruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. In other words, Paul like points them back 
into the Old Testament, right? And he says, listen, just like when Adam, the first man, rebelled against God in sin, and as a result, death became a part of every human story, like in the same way when Jesus rose from the grave, like resurrection after death also became a part of every human story. Paul writes that Jesus was the first fruits of those who have risen from the grave, and the incredible reality is that there's more to come. And now, um, not surprisingly, again, hundreds of miles away from where the resurrection would have happened, Paul's words about resurrection raised questions to these early Jesus followers in the city of Corinth, which they asked Paul, and this is kind of cool, in a second letter to them, Paul answered. And the first question, apparently, was what our physical bodies will be like after we rise. So check out Paul's answer to that question. He says, now... We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. He goes on, for while we're in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And it's like super highly symbolic language. I know, but let me do my best to tell you what Paul's doing here. Paul essentially likens our current bodies to tents. And as anyone who has ever tried to camp in a tent for an extended period of time will tell you, tents eventually wear out and are not all that useful. And so Paul writes like in the same way, our current bodies are designed to be temporary and the longer we inhabit them, see if you're tracking with me, the more aware we are of that reality. You with me on this? Yeah. Like every time I go to the gym, I'm like, why am I aching there? I don't even understand, right? But he says, listen, your current bodies are temporary, but because of Jesus and his resurrection, you need to look forward to the hope that one day after you too will be raised from the grave and given new bodies, bodies free from sin, bodies free from death, bodies free from pain, forever bodies just like the one Jesus was given after his resurrection. In other words, Jesus was the first fruits of those who would rise from the dead. And because he rose, we can trust that there's more to come. Okay, so just to review where we've been so far in this series, Jesus was crucified on Passover and fulfilled Passover as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you missed that talk, you can catch up online. And then today we talked about how Jesus was raised three days later on the Jewish feast of first fruits and fulfilled first fruits as being the first of many who will rise from the grave. And I'm telling you, as I was, I was just, I was working on this week and I wrote on my notes, isn't that incredible news? And we're only getting started. Wait till you see where we go next week. Uh, with that, um, I'd love to invite you to stand, and I'll close our time together in prayer. And once again this week, if you came into this space and, and you just would love to talk to somebody or pray with somebody, we'd love to meet you under the screen to the left um, and just spend some time together. Uh, but for the rest of us, uh, join me in a prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning in this place, um, we stand in awe of your plan. We stand in awe of your grace and your love for us not because we are good, but because you are good. 
Thank you for believing in us. Thank you for desiring a relationship with us even when we run. Thank you for loving us enough to receive us back. And thank you for the hope of a life after this life, a life where we will be everything that you intended us to be. In the meantime, may we carry that hope with us into a world that is in so desperate need of that hope. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is the way and the truth and the life. Thank you for what he accomplished on our behalf. And for today, I pray that your grace and your peace would be on us all. In his name, the name above all names, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week for part three of Seasons.